As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device. For enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm. Hi, this is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Margaret Mitchell. She is a senior research scientist at Google doing amazing work, and she studied linguistics at Reed College and computational linguistics at the University of Washington. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm always intrigued by how people make their way to the AI world, because a lot of times people's what they study in university, I see neuroscientists, I see physicists, I see all kinds of backgrounds that kind of like all roads lead to Rome. It's like, what was the path that got you from linguistics to computational linguistics to artificial intelligence? Yeah, so I followed um, a path similar to, I think, some other people who've had sort of linguistics training and then go into natural language processing which is a sort of applied field of AI, um, focusing specifically on processing um, and understanding text, uh, as well as generating. Um, and so I had been kind of fascinated by noun phrases when I was an undergrad. So that's things that, you know, refer to person, places, objects uh, in the world and things like that. Um, and I wanted to figure out, uh, is there a way that I could like analyze um, things in the world and then generate a noun phrase? So I was kind of playing around with this, just this idea of like, how could I generate noun phrases that are human-like? Um, and that was before I sort of knew about natural language processing. That was before uh, this new wave of AI interest. Um, I was just kind of playing around with trying to uh, do something that was human-like um, from my understanding of how language worked. Um, and then I found myself, you know, having to code and stuff to kind of get that to work, like mock up um, some, some basic examples of how that could work if you had uh, different knowledge um, about the kind of things that you're trying to talk about. Um, and once I started doing that, I realized that uh, I, was, I was doing essentially what's called natural language generation. Um, so, so generating phrases and things like that based on some input data or input knowledge base, something like that. Um, and so once I started getting into the natural language generation world, um, it was a slippery, slippery slope <laughs> to get into machine learning and then what we're now calling artificial intelligence, um, because those, ends up, those kinds of things end up being the methods that you use um, in order to process language. So my question is, I always hear these things that say computers have X D nine percent point whatever accuracy in transcription. And I fly a lot. And my frequent flyer number of choice has an A, an H, and an eight in it. Oh no. And I, I would say it never gets it right. Right. And it's only got 36 choices. Right. Why is it so awful? Right. So that's uh, speech processing. Um, uh, and that um, has to do with 
a, a bunch of different things, including just how well that the speech stream is being um, analyzed and um, the, the, the sort of frequencies that are picked, picked up are going to be different depending on what kind of device you're using. Um, and a lot of times the higher frequencies are cut off. And so words that when we're face to face or sounds that we hear face to face really easily um, are sort of uh, muddled more when we're using different kinds of devices. Um, and so that ends up, uh, especially on things like telephones, cutting off a lot of these higher frequencies that uh, really help those distinctions. Um, and then there's like just, you know, general training issues. So depending on who you've, who you've trained on and what the data represents, you're going to have, you know, different kinds of strengths and weaknesses. Well, I also find that in a way, kind of our ability to process linguistics is ahead of our ability in many cases to doing something with it. Like, yeah. Uh, my, I can't say the, the names out loud because I have two of these popular devices on my desk and they'll answer me if I, if I mention them, but they always understand what I'm saying, but the degree to which, uh, they get it right. Like if I say what's bigger, a nickel or the sun, uh, they never get it. And yet they usually understand the sentence. So, um, I don't really know where I'm going with that other yeah, than to say, so, do you feel like kind of your area of practice is one of the more mature, like, like, Hey, we're doing our bit, you know, the rest of you common sense people over there and, and, and you models of the world people over there and you transfer learning people, y'all are falling behind, but the, the comp computational linguistics people, we have it all together. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't think that that's true. And uh, what, I mean, the, what you're meant like the things you're mentioning aren't actually mutually exclusive either so you, you know uh in natural language processing you often use uh common sense databases or you're actually helping to do um information extraction in order to fill out those databases um and you could also use transfer learning transfer learning is a general technique um that is um, pretty powerful in deep learning models right now and deep learning models are used in natural language processing as well as image processing um, as well as a ton of other stuff. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's kind of um, everything you're mentioning is, is relevant to this task of uh, saying something and having your device on your desktop understand what you're talking about. Um, and that whole process isn't just simply, you know, recognizing the words, but it's taking those words and then mapping them to some sort of user intent and then being able to act on that intent. Um, and so that whole, that whole pipeline, that whole process involves a ton of different models um, and, and requires being able to, you know, make queries about the world and extract information um, based on, you know, usually it's going to be the content words of the phrase. So nouns, verbs, um, things that are uh, conveying the, the main um, sort of ideas in your utterance. Um, and using those in order to find relevant information to that. So the Turing test, you know, if I can't tell I'm talking to a person or a machine, mm -hmm. you got to say the machine's doing a pretty good job. Um, it's thinking according to Turing. Do you, uh, do you think passing the Turing test would actually be a watershed event? Or do you think that's more like marketing and hype? And that, that's not the kind of thing you even care about one way or the other. Right. So the Turing test, as originally um, construed, has this 
basic notion that um, the person who is judging can't tell whether or not it's uh, human generated or you know machine generated. Um, and there's lots of ways to do that. That's not exactly what we mean by human level performance. So for example, um, you, could, you could sort of trivially pass the Turing test if you were pretending to be um, a machine that like doesn't understand English well, right? So you could say that, you know, oh, this is, a, this is a person behind this. They're just learning English for the first time. You know, they might get some things mixed up. Um, and as long as you can kind of use even um, template-based approaches, you know, keyword-based approaches, you could generate things that um, do seem like they are a human and so would in that way sort of pass the Turing test. Um, and I think that that's not maybe the spirit of the Turing test, but I think that like uh, there's a lot of additional factors that should be taken into account when actually trying to think about what intelligence is. Um, so, you know, for example, being able to make uh, inferences about related kinds of events or related kind of activities, things that um, require more complex reasoning. Um, and that has more to do with uh, the ability to analyze, the ability to create new content or to generate new content given a bunch of inputs, um, and less to do with convincing a listener or, or a reader that this is a human or not. Um, and I think that it's maybe a bit of the wrong direction to try and pass the Turing test in order to say you have intelligence because it could be the case that, you know, the ideal intelligence or the intelligence that we want to have with our machines um, doesn't express itself in exactly human-like ways. Um, and so, you know, you'll find that when we have generated utterances, for example, with our um, various devices, uh, they don't stutter. They don't uh, use ums and uhs and likes and things like that. And that's sort of fine. And I don't think that means that these things aren't intelligent. It just means that they're working with a different kind of intelligence. Um, so the Turing test is, is really sort of a fascinating way to think about you know, uncovering what intelligence is, but I don't see it as the end goal um, as originally construed. I think we, you know, could probably pass it and there may have been, there may have recently been some sort of competitions that sort of trivially pass it using um, uh, template-based approaches. Um, and that's not exactly getting at what we're talking about when we're talking about artificial intelligence. Yeah, I mean, if you read the, I, I, I personally think that, that they have to rig, and I use, the, that's not the right word because everybody knows it's being done, but they, they can find the kinds of questions you can ask so narrowly that you don't really have anything that is making a compelling, like there's not a single system I've ever seen that I can't decipher in, in one question. I mean, there's a hundred questions that none of them can even come close to answering. So let me give you a Turing test kind of question. Okay. Um, Dr. Smith is eating at her favorite restaurant when suddenly her phone rings. Uh, after speaking for a moment, she looks worried, runs out of the restaurant, forgetting to pay her bill. Is management likely to call the police? So 
with that question, you've got to know a lot about culture. You've got to, oh, it's her favorite restaurant, so they probably know her. Oh, she's a doctor looking worried, probably an emergency call. No, they're not going to call the police. They're just going to, right? Mm-hmm. So how far away, how many years, decades, or centuries is it before a computer would be like, oh, no, they're not going to call the cops? Oh, yeah. So (laughs) reasoning about what a human would do, given a sequence of events. Um, Which, with a lot of cultural context, built into them. Yeah, each aspect of that sequence of uh, events points to a bunch of different sort of cultural knowledge or, you know, different kind of data points that entail a bunch of different things. Yeah. I mean... I would imagine that something like that would be possible or is possible in, in the relatively near term. Um, it all kind of comes down to what you've been able to define as the common knowledge or the cultural knowledge. So what it means to be a regular um, at a restaurant, um, you know, that has to be stored somewhere. That has to be understood somewhere. So that could be, you know, meaning like, we'll come back again to restaurant. Um, as long as you're able to extract that kind of information uh, from general text on the world in the world, so something that you might um, pick up uh, by scraping the web, things like that, um, then that kind of reasoning change should be possible. Um, the thing that sort of tricks up the systems when you do these kinds of long sequences of reasoning events is uh, connecting entities to one another. So knowing that. Um, The woman mentioned at the start is still the same woman mentioned at the end. Um, In order to do that, you have to do what's called a co-reference chain, meaning that you follow um, the original proper noun that mentions the the person, and then the pronouns that refer back to the person, and sort of ascertain that there's been no introduction of any new proper nouns that the pronouns could be um, referring to. Um, So at each point in that uh, sort of that sequence, that story, um, it's reasonable to assume that technology could be able to figure out uh, some of the basics. Where the, where the trickiness is, is just making sure that all of the people and all of the events um, are properly ascribed to their roles and who they are in the real world. And that's, yeah, that's a bit of the trickier part. Yeah, because sometimes, if I, if I said the giant chased the man, each of his footfalls shook the earth. You know, his isn't actually the most recent noun, right? Right, exactly, yeah. And that requires a lot of sort of previous understanding about how the world works. Um, So it's funny because I find practitioners as a general rule, when I have them on the show, they kind of have to deal with all this stuff. And so they're always the ones who say, this stuff is far away. Like, I can't even get it to say, tell, tell the difference between A, H, and H. And you're, you're, you're telling me about like social norms and all of that. And they're like, who knows? Like, how can we ever do that? So, yeah, so but you're a practitioner and you're like, oh yeah, we'll do that. We'll figure it out. That's possible. So for one thing, the restaurant domain <laughs> is really relatively well studied. So there's like, you know, a lot of dialogue systems focus in on, on restaurants and movies. So if there's any sort of domain that a system might be particularly well on, restaurants, knowing about things about restaurants and what it means to be a regular at a restaurant, um, as well as you know relevant things for movies are, are probably two domains that are um, more within grasp than some other domains. Um, but that speaks to, I think, this larger issue, which is that 
we can do things relatively well given a specific domain, but open world problems where we have no idea what the context will be um, or you know what the event what the possible events will be, what the possible um, actors and, and players in the event will be um, that that ends up getting uh, that ends up being a lot more difficult so maybe in a restaurant domain there would be enough knowledge collected over time to have sort of the, the relevant background to do reasoning. But if you were to talk about something that was um, less studied, like, I don't know, like something about exploring space or like how to, how to do like large inference over a series of actions, you know, circling Mars or something like that, where there isn't a ton of customers asking for this kind of uh, uh, information, that's probably gonna be a lot trickier. Um, and that's also because like the, we can do well in domains when they're closed because we can also leverage people to write out lots of information. Um, when we're trying to do anything in open domain, we have to be able to extract it all from the web, you know, train on data that we're able to get and um, without a human sort of in the loop, as it said, to, to filter that, to clean that up, it's often difficult to like know exactly what the right entities are, what the right relationships are. So I'm going to ask you an unfair question okay. uh, because it, it's not answerable, really. But how do we do that then? <laughs> how do we, um, like, given a, a sequence or a story, um, come to conclusions about? Yeah, because like if I said to you, "Hey, imagine a fish, a one-pound trout swimming in a river, okay. and imagine a one-pound trout in a in a jar of formaldehyde in a laboratory." Okay. And I'm just guessing these aren't two things that you have everyday experience with. Right. Um, and I said, are they, do they smell the same? You would say, no. Are they the same temperature? Definitely not. Are they yeah. the same color? Probably. Yeah. And, but, and, and like, I could ask you all of these things and it's yeah. effortless yeah. to you. So yeah. why, what are we doing? Yeah. So we're, we haven't yeah. machines to do. Yeah. So we're exposed to information, you know, from well, before we're born, but very much after we're born, we're just sort of given this, this constant influx of multimodal information. So vision, smell, um, sound, you know, um, and even people born with disabilities will, will use the other modalities and, and have those be, you know, very sensitive to all these kinds of things. Um, and that's constant. You basically never turn it off. So from a machine side, that would be like um, getting tons and tons of data constantly um, for uh, days, weeks, years, um, and being able to generalize from there. The thing that humans are doing that um, computers find a lot more difficult is taking um, information about previous situations and then generalizing them um, in a new kind of situation with very little information. Um, generally, machines need a lot of information in order to kind of make the connections more directly. Um, but I, I believe our ability to do that is, is based on our, you know, constant interaction in the world. And we pull on all that constant interaction when we, you know, make decisions about um, how to answer these kinds of questions. It seems effortless, but that's because our brains are, you know, amazing and uh, have recorded and, and memorized and found patterns in tons of things um, over the course of our whole lifespan. Um, given that same kind of constant information, a computer um, may be able to do that. Uh, the problem is, you know, computers aren't 
specified for the human modalities that, that we trivially take in. So the way that, you know, uh, vision systems, computer vision systems see the world is fundamentally, fundamentally different than how we as humans see the world using our, our eyes um, as opposed to using cameras. Um, and so really the difficulty there is, is taking the way that the computer can understand the world from, from these different modalities, from the vision modality or from the text modality, and then making that uh, be compartmentalized in a way that is somewhat human-like, um, where you kind of group things together in particular ways, you come up with generalizations that follow particular patterns that probably correspond to how the human brains have evolved. Um, and so, you know, the, the ability to do that is something that, uh, that the you know, modern computer systems pretty much break down on. Of course, we're, we have consciousness. So we experience the world as opposed to measuring it. Do you think consciousness, I mean, like, we all, we all know what it is. Nobody agrees on what brings it about, but we know what it is. It's mm -hmm. the experience of being you. Do you think that model of the world that you're talking about that, that which is all of that sensory input not only integrated but but kind of made sense of mm -hmm. um is that gonna would that potentially be a prerequisite for a computer to be able to duplicate the versatility that humans show in that must we build conscious computers to do that oh well that's a lot of well okay so um i would in order to get a versatility that is human-like, I think it is important to be able to process uh, the information in a human-like way. Um, although whether or not that means consciousness, like the ability to self-reflect is a completely uh, sort of different question. Um, it could very much be the case that we have a system that is able to process vision in a way similar to how humans do, uh, process, process sound, things like that and then come up with answers that are human-like. But that doesn't mean that it can self-reflect. And I think that's kind of what we mean when we're talking about human consciousness, the ability to sort of like identify oneself in the world and, and have a sense of self in the world. Um, and what gives rise to that in humans is not understood, or you know, there's lots of great, <laughs> I'm sure you've had uh, this covered on your, on your program before, there's lots of great work on this um, in philosophy. Um, but unless we can you know, figure out exactly the switch that goes from our sensory inputs to consciousness, it's gonna be tricky to say that a computer has consciousness, even if it's behaving exactly like a human. So I can talk about this forever. Uh, I'm fascinated by the topic and I'm yeah. chewing up all of my time with you, but I'd really like to close with you talking about some of your work as a senior research scientist at Google, for instance, uh, the model cards, for instance. Oh, awesome. Yeah, thank you. So one of the um, things that is being noticed more and more in the news is that uh, systems that are sort of released publicly don't work equally well for everyone. Um, so there's some really nice work, uh, for example, by Joy Bulamwini uh, and my colleague uh, Timnit Gabru, showing that gender detection doesn't work as well for black females as it does for white males. Um, and part of why this is um, okay or why this is sort of normal is because there's no standard of anyone ever reporting how well their systems work, um, much less reporting how well they work across a variety of sort of uh, different subgroups, um, which is called disaggregated evaluation. So the idea with model cards is just to have it be that when uh, an ML model or an AI model is made available, 
people have access to how well it works. They can know how well it works across different kinds of subgroups. They can know um, different information that went you know, into building the systems, so what the considerations were, information about the training data, um, limitations, how, um, how the system was benchmarked and things like that. Basically opening up some transparency into what these systems are actually doing um, so that people don't just use products thinking, oh, it works or doesn't work, um, and having a better sense of what the nuances are, when it works and when it doesn't. And where are you with that, and how can people find out kind of more? Do you, is that, is that a standard y'all are trying to release? Yeah, so, kind of uh, so Google and Microsoft um, have similar ideas in this space. Microsoft has data sheets, um, which is for data sets. And uh, Google's put out this idea of model cards for model reporting. Um, we're both uh, in, in discussions with the partnership on AI on figuring out how we might put these forward as a sort of first pass at a standard, um, hoping to put out a little bit of an idea that regulators and you know, other stakeholders who might be interested could grab onto and further iterate on. Um, we have papers out, so you could look up model cards for model reporting or data sheets for data sets. Um, some, there's been some sort of Google you know, blogs and stuff about this thing, but we're hoping to have um, some more significant launches um, in the near future. Well, we will keep an eye on that. How can people follow you and what you're doing and, and keep up uh, with that? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm M Mitchell AI, M Mitchell underscore AI. Um, I try and tweet interesting things. Um, so yeah, feel free. All right. Well, it was a fascinating half hour. I want to thank you for making the time and we'd love to have you back. Yeah, thank you so much. As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device. For enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm.